Well, good morning. Uh, My name, uh, if you came in a little bit late, is Pastor Mark Swanson. I'm visiting uh, with you from Trinity Church, uh, which is now in Mount Kisco. We were in Rye for quite a while, then we were in Purchase, but now we have a permanent home in Mount Kisco, uh, New York. And uh, Pastor Kevin, I don't know if it's a vacation or a sabbatical. Um, hopefully it's a sabbatical. And, uh, and if that's the case, thank you for giving your pastor a sabbatical. Not all churches do that. It's a great, it's a great gift to give your pastor. Um, I, wanted, I, I, I told Pastor Kevin that I'd like to preach an, an epiphany sermon today, because we're still technically within the season of Epiphany, even though we've returned to ordinary time in our vestments, but, uh, but I wanted to preach this to you today, and I want to start off with a simple question this morning, if you'll indulge me that. What is it that you'd most like or most desire for the coming year? Think on that. What is it that you'd most desire for the coming year? See, there are a few things that I'd like to see happen this year for myself. Uh, Personally, I'd like to travel more. Uh, A lot of us are coming out of the pandemic uh, more and more, have had the opportunity to get on planes and deal with delays and all the mess that's uh, that's occurred post-pandemic. I haven't flown once yet, um, but I'm hoping to. I I also look, I'm looking at the calendar of my year, as I usually do in the end of December, beginning of January, and all I see is that I'm taking on uh, a court, some coursework, I'm going back to school uh, for something, and I just see work, 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 work in my future. And so I want to travel. I don't know where. Um, it would be nice to go someplace exotic, like the south of France. More likely, I'd like to be able to go out to uh, Jerusalem again, uh, or to the Holy Land. But whatever it is, I just want to go. I, I feel the open road pulling on my heart. Uh, When I moved out of the Northeast and uh, became a missionary to Canada for 10 years, I had a chance to live out West, and that meant a lot of road uh, travels, weeks and weeks of them, uh, with my faithful dog, Sam, my Australian shepherd, Sam, who would sit in the back of the car, and I would just drive all over the Western United States and Canada to the Rocky Mountains, you, you name it, I've been there. You see, we all have those things that pull on our hearts, that capture our imagination, that create a sense of desire within us. And these things that we may want may be very, very good things. There's nothing wrong with them in and of themselves. It may be travel for you, or it could be that promotion for work. Uh, You know, nobody's been promoting anybody in their jobs lately. Hopefully that will happen uh, for you this year if that's something that you've been waiting on for a long time. Or perhaps it's better communication uh, with your kids, especially if you have teenagers Maybe this is the year you'll be able to break through and communicate with your teens a little bit better. Um, I've heard it all. But let me suggest to you that these things, as good as they are, are not ultimately what gives us a sense of profound joy in this life, that kind of joy that we're always searching for, that our heart of hearts deeply want. They're great gifts, to be sure, but they won't give us what our hearts ultimately want. Now, I chose to speak uh, through C.S. Lewis earlier in our confession, and I'm going to do that again throughout my sermon time with you this morning. C.S. Lewis, in the prologue to one of his earliest books, The Pilgrim's Regress, one of my favorites of his, speaks to this deep longing in the human heart, this desire which we all have, which manifests itself in one way or another through a plethora of visions and of values that we hold on to. For instance, 
And these are all suggestions that he gives or examples he gives. For instance, there's the child who's looking off and that far away hillside who thinks to himself or thinks to herself, I want to be there. If only I were there. And that becomes for the adult the itching desire for another place for a greener pastor to live in or in my case to visit. Or perhaps that desire, he says, comes in the form of nostalgia, remembering some better time in the past that we wish we could go back to and revisit. Or, Lewis says, perhaps it manifests itself in the reading of something like a tale or a poem. Uh, C.S. Lewis loved fairy tales that suggest other worlds or another reality that one wishes they could enter into. Or, to take the next step, He suggests that our desire could take that next step into realizing or trying to realize that poem or that tale or that fairy tale to actually experience something metaphysical, something that we could make contact with in the unknown, something beyond this world. And so it was for these so-called magi as we enter into our story this morning. Their greatest desire... What drove them was to finally experience what they had committed their entire lives to, the search for meaning, contact with the metaphysical realities just out of their reach and their experience. And they were willing to travel what probably amounted to about 40 days through the desert to uncover this mystery, a mystery that had been presented to them in the form of a star and a story, and then they were finally blessed to see that mystery unfold before their very eyes. So that happens to be my three points. I'm a three-point preacher. Uh, So those are my three points today as we unpack this epiphany text. The star, the story, and then ultimately and finally to see. Because these are very often means of grace that God gives us. There are means that through which God draws us to what our greatest desire is, whether we recognize it or not, which is God himself. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the text a little bit. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we ask that you would lay our hearts bare, that you would speak to us through your word, through uh, the prayers and Uh, the praise that we offer you to this morning, and through this time of Eucharisto, of thanksgiving as we gather around your table. And through all of these things, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the beauty of your Son. May the beauty of Jesus Christ capture our hearts once again, and may we see the gospel in his face. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let me begin with this. All right. The visitors, these visitors from outside Judea, are sometimes called kings. You've probably heard this in hymns and stories. Sometimes they're called kings. Sometimes they're called wise men. But uh, most accurately, they are called magi. And these particular magi were likely from Persia. And they were practice, uh, practitioners of ancient astronomy and astrology and they specialize in the interpretation of dreams. If you've ever been to the Holy Land and you've been to uh, the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, uh, you will see uh, the, the a mural of the wise men. 
and they look Persian. All right? Of that time, they look Persian. It's one of the reasons that church managed to stay upright and erect and not burn down or torn down when the Islamic invasions came in later. They saw their own people up on that mural and said, let's leave this church alone. So they were probably from, uh, they were probably from Persia, and they specialized in these things. And this much we also know about the Magi, that throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament... Mages or magi are not painted in a favorable light. In the book of Acts, for instance, Simon the mage tried to purchase, if you remember the story, tried to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit from Peter. And he was warned by Peter that his bitterness and his quest for power could bring God's judgment upon him. See, nowhere in the Bible are magi or mages shown in a favorable light except here, this text, this moment. Because here in Matthew, things take this unlikely turn because these magi are shown to be at least this, true seekers. Men who want to understand the mystery behind the star and the story that they've been presented with. So let's look at the star first. William Shakespeare said, When beggars die, there are no comets seen, but the heavens themselves blaze forth for the death of princes. This was the zeitgeist of the ancient world. It was generally believed that there was a connection between the heavenly realm, uh, reflected in the astrological vision of the night sky, and the fate of men. Constellations served not only as uh, navigational aids for people traveling by land or by sea, but they also represented stories by which people lived their very lives. For example, history tells us that there was an enormous comet that appeared in the sky just after Julius Caesar's death, uh, which really helped the astrology religion with the skeptics, the few skeptics that there were. But it also helped Caesar's nephew and adopted son, Augustus, rise to the throne to become the ruler of the known world. That's how seriously most people took these signs in the heavens. And it was this sort of thing that the Magi desired to look into. For the Magi, their greatest desire was wisdom. These wise men sought knowledge and they sought truth to the best of their ability. And so when a star suddenly appeared, they needed to know. They needed to know. And this leads to the first means that God often uses to reach the hearts of men and women, to scratch that itch, that desire that we have for something more. He speaks to us through his creation. The scriptures tell us in Psalm 19, verses 1 to 2, I'm sure many of you know this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out street uh, speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. These magi, these wise men, who don't know the living God at this point, whose practices were frowned upon by the Jews, were nevertheless drawn to God, or to where God is, is through his creation, or in this case, an anomaly, perhaps, of his creation, this star. God places this star in the heavens, something that would have grabbed their attention, especially. And this star 
that doesn't, uh, it doesn't point to itself, but instead is connected to something else. The star is connected to a story. And that leads to the second means by which God draws us to himself in general. It turns out that while the Magi were in Persia, they had heard a story. A story of a king who would be born. A great king who would change the world. In fact, at that time in the ancient world, both Virgil, the historians Virgil and Tacitus, had recorded that even the Romans knew of this story of a promised deliverer. That they themselves were waiting for news of his birth. The historian Josephus recorded that many Jews were also expecting a Messiah king at the time of Jesus' birth. And so it was with these magi. We know this because when they arrived in Jerusalem, they didn't simply ask for the meaning of the star. Please tell us what the star was about. That's not all they asked for, but they asked for the king to which the star was meant to lead them. Where is this king we've heard about, they asked. And so they met with King Herod and with the scribes, with the priests, and it was then that they were presented with this prophecy from the scriptures. I'll reread it to you. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And it's at that moment, it's at that moment that the story wasn't just a rumor or just a story. It became a prophecy. A prophecy, they realized, was happening right before their very eyes. So they immediately parted, departed from Bethlehem with Herod and his other leaders lying to them, saying, oh, tell us where this king is and we'll go worship him as well. My friends, that's the power of Scripture. That's the power of Scripture. You see, it takes more than a bright light in the heavens. It takes more than creation itself to know who the living God is. It takes his word. It takes his Story. Let me give you an example from my own life. You don't know me very well, so I might as well tell you a little bit about me. When I was a teenager, uh, even a young adult, every time I grew up in New Jersey, so I'm a Jersey boy. You can't hear it in my accent anymore. I got rid of that. Um, but uh, I used to go down to the Jersey Shore with my friends, right? So I go down to the Jersey Shore, and everyone would be doing whatever they do, teenagers. And uh, I would often break away, and I would go just sit on the beach. And I would stare out, especially at night, I would just stare out beyond the breaking waves to what I thought was probably Ireland, way out there somewhere. Um, I would see the stars, you know, there was less light pollution. It was, it was really beautiful, and it was really mysterious for me. I would gather to myself this sense of the numinous, what Rudolf Otto called the numinous. And so I knew, I knew in my heart of hearts, that this all wasn't a cosmic accident. I didn't know where to go beyond that, but I knew there was something more to this world than just a series of accidents. But it wasn't enough to open my heart to God the Father either. And so when I was around 22 years old, uh, my best friend, who had uh, gone through his own religious reawakening, come to Christ, um, locked me in his room for about three hours, and forced me to watch prophecy videos by televangelists for three hours. And uh, when it was all done, he asked me, well, what do you think? And I said, I think I want to go home now. (laughs) So that didn't work. And then he became desperate, 
he invited me to come back over, and I said, you're not going to give me any of this religious stuff again, are you? And he says, yeah, no, 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 just, just bear with me. And he, uh, and, he, and he threw a Hail Mary pass, and he opened up his Bible to the book of John, and he read John 1, 11 to 12 to me. This is the part I remember. He probably read more. And he, Jesus the Word, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And as I thought about that, I went home, and I laid down in bed, and I realized that I had been running from the very thing that I had been desiring all along. You see, every time I sat at that beach in Long Beach Island, New Jersey, that moment was being used by God to stir my heart, to slowly draw me back to himself. Even though I was faithless, he was faithful. But it was the story of the gospel the story of Jesus. It was the word of God that finally drew me towards him. Now, I tell you all of this because this is the way God tends to operate. First, we might be drawn through the beauty of creation. We might wonder if there's a creator, a meaning behind it all in the existence of our lives. But then we need something more. We need to know who God is, what he wants from us how much he loves us. Matthew tells us here that it's only the scriptures, the story, God's story, that can provide that level of revelation. But he goes even further than that. This is the brilliance of this story because, my friends, it's not the scriptures in and of themselves. It's not the scriptures in and of themselves that ultimately capture our hearts because like the star, the scriptures point to something. In fact, they point to someone that we need to encounter, that we need to experience, that we need to know. And it's he who captures our hearts. It's in seeing him that the mystery falls away. And that brings us to our final point this morning. Matthew ends our passage by telling us what the purpose of the creation and all of all the scriptures, the point of all wisdom is, and that's found in the person, the Son of Jesus, uh, Son of God, Jesus Christ, because He is the Word. He is the object of our faith. He is the Word of God, as I heard through that reading of the Gospel of John that first day. He is the Word of God personified. What these wise men sought through the leading of the star and the proclamation of a story was a king. But what they encountered was something, someone far more magnificent. Because all of their lives, listen, all of their lives, these magi sought wisdom and the unveiling of mystery. It's why they call this moment in the scriptures and why we have it in the, uh, uh, in the, in the church calendar every year, the epiphany. They called the epiphany. We're told that the truth of the mystery of the gospel was revealed not to the powerful, not to the prestigious, but to the poor, to the outcast, to shepherds on the night of Christ's birth in the book of Luke. But here, 
to these pagan magi months later. And when the magi beheld Jesus, what does the gospel writer Matthew tell us they did? He says they worshipped. Matthew's very deliberate in using this word. Could have said they bowed down, they just gave him gifts, they honored him. No, they worshipped. Not only did they present these gifts, but I also suggest to you that they presented their hearts. Because at that mystery, I think, at that moment, that mystery, the true object of all their desires, became known to them. I think it's fair to say that they became fellow heirs, partakers in the covenant promises of God. Because this is the point, isn't it? Of what Matthew goes on to say, and Luke in his gospel goes on to say over and over and over again, that the gospel is about the Gentiles being brought in. Paul spends a lot of his writings talking about this very thing. This is the gospel. Gentiles brought in. And, that's, and so our story this morning ends with these words from Matthew. We're told that the Magi did what? They returned home. But before doing so, we read that God spoke to them in a dream. Of course, they were used to receiving dreams as revelation. And told them not to return to Herod. And Matthew closes our text by saying, and they departed to their own country by another way. Now, a little liberty here, but I fancy that Matthew's not only speaking about the route they took, of course, he's certainly talking about that, but I think he's also speaking of the state of their hearts as they did so. The Magi who returned to Persia, who returned to their pagan home, were not the same magi that departed from their homes months before, following a star, following a story. Their faith, as St. Augustine said, their faith-seeking understanding, and the grace of God imparted to them, I'm sure, changed them forever. T.S. Eliot, by the way, if you're a fan of his writings, he held this view as well. He ends his famous poem, The Journey of the Magi, with these bittersweet words spoken from the point of view of one of these wise men years after the events of Matthew had taken place. Listen to how he wraps up his poem. Eliot says in the voice of the first person of one of the Magi, he says, We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. I should be glad of another death. My friends, Once we've encountered the living Christ, it changes our perspective on everything. Everything. And when we return to our homes, to our lives, it's by another way. To follow Jesus is to be born again into a wider, to a brighter world. But it's also to take on the reality of just how out of place we've now become in the world as it is, this dispensation, Eliot calls it. The old is gone and the new has come. And what was once a home has become a hotel. And what distractions once filled our hours become the substance of another life, of a once distant memory. And that's the bittersweet cost to faith. We die to this world even as we seek to bless it. 
So let me begin to end with this question for you. What is the object of your greatest desire? What is it? Write it down later. Think about it over coffee this afternoon. What is the object of your greatest desire? And let me go a bit further with that, if you're being honest with yourself. If you were to finally get your desire, would you really be happy? Or do you think you might actually become disappointed in the having of it? It's a $1.35 billion mega ball jackpot something or other. Somebody up in Maine is very rich right now. Every person who, uh, they've researched this, every person who's ever won a huge lottery has ended up miserable. I can't speak to that from experience. But it seems to be the case. Seems to be the case. I've been saying all throughout our time together this morning that our desires, even our best desires, if they're outside of God, if they're, they don't include God, if they're not God himself, will always fall short. And they're always going to disappoint in some way because we're seeking them as ultimate desires. I don't care what that is. It could be the love of your children. It could be your marriage. It could be your career. If we make them into things that were never meant to be in the first place, we will end up disillusioned. To return once again to what C.S. Lewis had to say at the beginning of our time together, the child who finally gets to that hillside, they're just going to want another and another and another. Just as the adult who's always looking for those greener pastures, who's never satisfied, well, they'll never be satisfied, no matter how many greener pastures they go to. I've moved all over the place. I've lived all over the continental U.S., and I can say no one of them, not one of them has just satisfied me just being there because we always want that next experience. Or if we could somehow return to the past, if we could somehow relive our fondest memories, go back to that time where life seems easier, has that gloss of happiness surrounding it, what we would probably find, Lewis says, is that there were just ornament ordinary moments that we've romanticized in our minds, or even if they were tremendous moments, we, we still couldn't hold on to them. We couldn't just keep reliving them because once we experienced in the moment, we'd be gone again. And finally, for those who want to take that one step further, who perhaps dabble in things that uh, want to take them out of, uh, out of what, what is right in front of them and dabble into spiritism, you, you don't have to watch cable for long or see what's on the bookshelves and in, uh, in, in bookstores for long to see what's really popular these days. People are very spiritual. It's maybe perhaps the wrong kind of spiritual. But they're looking for something. But those who knock on those doors, I can tell you, what they might find there, especially if they're dabbling in the wrong things, is not entertaining. It's actually quite terrifying. But God, my friends, is gracious. He doesn't desire to leave us with our vain imaginings any more than he wanted to leave the Magi with theirs. God took astrologers and he turned them into worshipers. So I'll end with this. To see God, to know God, means to have our eyes open to the incarnation, to Emmanuel, to God with us. Not God against us, not God apart from us, not God apathetic toward us, but God with us. And that's what we had been 
celebrating this Christmas season, and that's what we can enjoy this epiphany. And so we worship. We worship on Sunday mornings. We worship in the prophecy of our homes. We worship when we go for a walk in the woods or sit on that sandy seashore somewhere. Because this is the joy of holy longing, finally and forever finding its rest and satisfaction in the true object our desires have always sought after, Jesus Christ. It's what the heart really and truly wants, his life, his cross, his resurrection. That's what I want for my new year, and I, perhaps it can become your new year's desire as well.